We are continuing to make our way through all four of the Gospels, kind of uh, in various order, through this Lenten and Easter season. And this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. So let me invite you to turn there in your Bibles uh, as, we, as we look together at that passage this morning. Passage in that section in Luke's Gospel speaks to the, the healing and helping presence of Jesus, especially as his ministry is beginning in the, in the Galilee region. I'm going to think about uh, our own experiences with, with receiving and asking and praying for help. John Lennon is famously, you know, a member of the Beatles and by many considered one of the greatest songwriters in rock and roll history. And for the, the first four years of the Beatles' success, they were started in 1960. For the first four years, most of the songs the Beatles wrote were catchy, kind of upbeat pop rock tunes that quickly found a wide audience. Lennon was one of the primary songwriters in the Beatles, along with Paul McCartney, and his formula for songwriting seemed to be working well. The Beatles' rise to fame was probably one of the biggest and fastest in music history. But when they were touring in 1964, he met someone he was beginning to look up to as a songwriter. He, he got to sit down with Bob Dylan. And Dylan appreciated the Beatles' music, but he gave him some feedback. He encouraged Lennon to actually write songs about the life he was living, not just songs he thought people wanted to hear. Lennon took that on board, and at that moment in his life, he was struggling. He was overwhelmed by the fame that the band had experienced in such a short period of time. So much so that he had fallen in and out of depression um, pretty, pretty consistently. So when he and the Beatles went to write songs for their fifth album, what came out of the studio was a cry for help. That was the name of the album. It was the name of the title track, and it was actually the name of a film that was shot to go along with the album probably know the, the refrain on that song, right? Won't you please, I can't sing it, please help me. I'll let somebody who's better at that try it. Later in his life, Lennon said that that song was probably his favorite piece of songwriting because it was the most honest. Even though he was just 25, right? I think he was, was beginning to express you know, the moment in his life where he felt kind of out over his skis, out of control. Things didn't feel predictable or safe. Many of us spend a much longer portion of our lives trying to stay in control, trying to find ways to cope with our difficulties rather than acknowledge that, that plea for help. Maybe you can think of, of times in your own life where, where you needed help but maybe you didn't know who to ask for help from. Or maybe you asked and help didn't show up in the way you hoped or expected. 
And those experiences shape us. They shape our, our relationships with each other. They shape our relationship with God. Right? I wonder if you've experienced praying for help, acknowledging your situation before God, and wondering if God sees what you're going through, wondering if God cares what you're going through, wondering whether there's any response coming. In today's passage in Luke 7, we, we meet someone who has needed help for quite a long time. She is a widow living in the village of Nain. Not only has she lost her husband, but she has also now lost her only son, which would be a crisis in any circumstance, but particularly in the ancient world. And she's, she's left without a, a security net, with someone to, to provide for her, even her own inheritance, any property she owned would be jeopardized with this loss. I want to see how the presence of God shows up in her story this morning. Would you pray with me as we turn to Luke 7? We'll pick up the story in verse 11. Lord, I thank you that your word does say, as we heard in the children's message this morning, that you love us that you are always with us. And you hear the cries of your people. The, the book of Exodus makes that clear. That when, when your people call out to you, you are moved by those prayers. Lord, I pray that as we read your word this morning, as we also consider our own circumstances, that we would be drawn to you, Jesus. And, and we would see you moving toward us. May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight today. In Jesus' name, amen. This Jesus story takes place again uh, in still some of the earlier part of Jesus' ministry as he's moving throughout uh, the towns of Galilee. He's just healed a centurion's servant, and now uh, verse 11 tells us about what happened next. So soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with Jesus. As he approached the town gate that day, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And there was a large crowd from the town with her also. As Luke begins to tell us this short Jesus story, he draws our attention to two different crowds. One mentioned in verse 11, the other in verse 12. And they're actually crowds moving in opposite directions. The first crowd, verse 11, is gathered around the good news and the ministry of Jesus. His teaching, his preaching, his healing. As he moves from town to town in Galilee. And this crowd, the Jesus crowd, is moving toward town, into town, headed toward the city gate. The second crowd, mentioned in verse 11, is gathered around a widow who is watching her only son carried out of that same city gate 
to be buried in the graveyard outside town. And two crowds going in opposite directions. Songwriter Michael Card, who's written a beautiful series of devotional commentaries on the Gospels, pictures the, the story in this way. He says, in my mind's eye, I see these two groups in silhouette against an afternoon sky. According to Jewish custom in the first century, the widow would have been at the head of the funeral procession. And I also imagine Jesus at the head of his crowd of followers. As the two crowds approach, the woman looks up through her despair to see Jesus. The question I wonder about is, does she know who's approaching, coming toward her? Does she know about Jesus? I think there's a pretty strong chance she would, given that Nain is just about five kilometers from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, right? And so if, if his reputation is growing in Galilee, probably the people in Nain know about Jesus. They've heard the stories by now. And if she does know that that's who's moving toward her, I wonder how she feels about the person of Jesus. I wonder how she feels about this band of, of, of people and their enthusiasm and their excitement headed toward her on this day. Right? The timing of Jesus' arrival here is awkward. Right? The, the great prophet Jesus has finally made time to come and visit Nain. But he arrives on a day where it's too late for him to do anything for this woman, right? for the help she needs. It's also awkward because who wants to hear about the good news of the kingdom of God on the day of a funeral. In some ways, Jesus' presence and that crowd coming with him may have felt insensitive, given the circumstances. But Luke wants us to understand here that Jesus and his caravan come to town, not coincidentally, not too late, but precisely at the right time. Look at verses 13 through 15. When the Lord, when Jesus saw this woman, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the bier they were carrying her son on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And then Jesus gave him back to his mother. Again, if we, if we picture these two crowds approaching one another, if you picture yourself in that procession with Jesus, if I were near the front of that crowd and I saw the funeral procession coming toward us, I would be inclined to avert my eyes or, or hope maybe Jesus would sort of walk around them, give them some space. Recognize their need for, for privacy. But verse 13 says that Jesus did not steer around this crowd, but he moved directly toward it. Verse 13 says that when he saw the woman, it moved 
the verb there, which the NIV uh, translates, his heart went out to her, is a verb used at several points in the Gospels to describe how Jesus felt when he looked upon someone suffering or grieving. In Greek, the verb means to feel something way down here in your bowels, in your guts. The Gospels are clear that when Jesus sees people in need of help, he is not stoic. He doesn't remove himself, but rather is moved toward them. His compassion moves Jesus. And in these verses, Jesus is first moved to speak with the woman. He approaches her, comes close enough to address her, and he says to her, do not weep, do not cry. Which is probably the very worst thing you could say to someone about to bury their own son. Unless you are prepared to do what Jesus does next. In verse 14, Jesus' compassion goes beyond words and moves toward action. And Jesus comes up to the bier, the, the casket or the platform that this young man had been placed on. And he extends his hands, places them upon the coffin, which is taboo. He's rendering himself unclean. It's not something that would be expected. We're wondering why is Jesus doing this? Cyril of of Alexandria, one of the the patriarchs of the early church in Alexandria, said this in a sermon on this passage. He said that that the fate of this young man, who is destined for the tomb, is moving toward the grave. His fate is intercepted by Jesus here. Cyril says, quote, Christ, who is the life and the resurrection, meets him on his way to the place of death because Jesus is the destroyer of death and corruption. Jesus arrests this funeral procession. Cyril of Alexandria goes on to say, not only does Jesus command the woman to stop weeping, but Jesus goes one step further in commanding death which is the cause of her weeping, to be silenced as well. And so he says now to the young man, get up, be raised. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, death has to step aside. It says that that young man on that morning sat up and began to When Jesus sees this village in need of help, right, his compassion moves him toward those in suffering. His compassion moves him to touch them, to physically involve himself. And now in verse 15, it moves Jesus to place this young man back into his mother's arms. As if to say, this is why. This is the good news of the kingdom. 
Right? I wonder if there has ever been another funeral procession that has ended like this one. Right? Picture now these two crowds merging into one and returning back through the city gate, led by Jesus and the widow and her newly rescued son. Verses 16 and 17 conclude this short story, saying that as they, as they returned, they were all filled with awe and they praised God, saying, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. I love the, the words there in verse 16, at the end of that verse. The people of Nain, as their story converges with, is, is arrested by, is intercepted by the person of Jesus, they can say with confidence, God has come. God does God does help his people. Cyril of Alexandria, who I quoted in his sermon on this passage a few moments ago, says this about the person of Jesus, about the stories of Jesus. He says, the flesh of Christ has the power of giving life, and Jesus annihilates the influence of death and corruption because it is the flesh of his word who gives life to all. And he ends by saying, may our Lord Jesus Christ also touch us. We, we can hear the account of Luke's gospel as a beautiful story. Hopefully we, we even believe in, in its veracity and its truth, that it's miraculous in nature. But we may still wonder, does God still come to help his people? Does Jesus' story still intersect with ours? To speak to that question, I'd like to finish our time this morning by asking Mary Pete to come up. Mary has offered to share her own Jesus story with us this morning. And it's a story of, of Jesus intercepting her life. You can share wherever you're comfortable there, Mary. Yeah. At several points in her story and, and touched her with the power of his life and his presence. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Thank you, Dave. So those of you that don't know me, I grew up in a large, loving Catholic family. The Bible was seldom opened in my house, but I am grateful that my parents made sure that all 11 of us kids got out the door and on time to catechism on Saturday mornings and to mass on Sunday mornings. Can you even imagine it? <laughs> so I grew up with a foundation of faith. I knew that God existed, but I did not know what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I married my high school sweetheart while we were both in college. My husband started using and abusing alcohol. He flunked out of college and lost his athletic scholarship. I dropped out to get a job to help support us. When I got pregnant with our first child, 
my husband's alcohol addiction joined forces with drugs and infidelity. I'm not sure where my faith was in all of this, but I think it got swallowed up in trying to survive all the craziness. I was not turning to God or anyone for help. Ashamed, I distanced myself from my family. I felt so alone. Three years later, right after the birth of our daughter, I began to hemorrhage uncontrollably and was rushed into the operating room. The situation became life-threatening. And then I had a near-death experience, a divine intervention, a turning point that would be the start of my Jesus story and bring me to a personal relationship with the Lord. I recall going through a tunnel with images of my loved ones surrounding me. And then I felt a great presence, an immense being, more powerful and loving than anything I had ever felt before. I knew it was God, and I pleaded with him for my life. I argued that I could not leave an infant and a three-year-old in the care of a sick man. It was my first admittance that my husband was seriously ill. A deep, soothing, and comforting voice said, do not worry, it's not your time yet. You are going back. Instantly, I opened my eyes and said to my husband, I'm going to change my whole life. I didn't know what that quite meant at the time, but I did know that I no longer felt all alone. I had been given a second chance, and I knew there was a loving God looking out for me. I turned to a life of prayer and surrendered to God's will and finally found the strength to get out of that abusive marriage. As a single parent, I needed to make a better income to support myself and my two children. I decided to go back to college and fulfill my dream of becoming a teacher. I tried on several churches and settled with a church in Richmond. Eight years later, it was there that I met my second husband, Danny. Many years later, friends of ours invited us to JCC, and we started attending services. For the first time, we heard the Bible preached from the pulpit. We saw a congregation spiritually hungry, and we wanted to be a part of that. It seemed as if my life was smooth sailing, or so I thought. But in the summer of 2011, all those years of stress coupled with menopause led to burnout and a major depressive episode. I was having difficulty coping and sleeping. I needed to permanently leave teaching, a profession that I loved but worked too hard at. I dragged myself to church, but all I could do was sit in the pew and cry. It took over two years to find the right doctor and many trials of medication to help get me well. During this time, I had tremendous support from my family and from other women of this church who brought everything from meals to prayer shawls, took me out for walks, and above all, prayed. I began to feel shod in the gospel, and I just kept taking the next step, clinging to the Lord with all my might. Over the next several months, as I slowly improved, I lived above my circumstances with deep dependence on the Lord. I came to terms with the pain of my first marriage, finally allowing myself to grieve and acknowledge my brokenness and need for healing. I was able to let go of regrets 
and forgave myself for my own mistakes, as well as my ex-husband for his illness, and radically accepted that my teaching career had to end in the way in which it did. When we experiencing, experience suffering and trials, we may be tempted to despair. But when I look back at my life story and read stories from the Bible about other women who have greatly suffered and persevered through hardships, it encourages me to display similar faithfulness in my current circumstances. Trials form and refine us. They increase our reliance on the Lord and help us to become more like him. I believe God wants us to know that we can do anything with his help and that he wants us to grow spiritually to the point that absolutely nothing, not even the worst suffering or circumstances, can rob us of his joy, love, and peace as we closely follow him. I think that's what it means to be conformed to the image of his son. God has used my suffering, both past and present, to help me leave a trail of courage and find great purpose and joy and blessing in serving others. With compassion and understanding, I have come alongside others who are battling depression or living with addicted loved ones. God has taught me to love more deeply through caring for family in need, even when it's really hard. I cherished the time I spent with my father and brother who battled cancer and left his way too soon, and with my mother in her last years following a stroke. I'm caring for my twin sister, my best friend, as she declines from the final stages of Alzheimer's disease. She was someone I talked to almost every day for over 60 years, and now she doesn't talk at all anymore and seldom recognizes me. But still, I treasure my days with her, even when it's just sitting together. Her content, sweet spirit is still there, and her occasional smiles are such a gift. Three years ago, my daughter gave birth to a son who was hospitalized for nearly three months. When she finally got the diagnosis of his rare and complicated medical condition, I cried with her knowing that the road ahead would be a very difficult one. But then I stood in the light and I said, okay, Lord, here we go. And God has been so good. We are thankful for every bit of progress our precious little grandson makes. A scripture I have imprinted deep in my soul is Isaiah 43.2, and we're going to hear it sung by the choir in a few minutes. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And then later on in that same chapter, Isaiah says in verse 18, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. My youngest sister refers to the years of my first marriage and the years I suffered from depression as the lost years. I used to agree with her. However, over time, I have come to appreciate them in a different light and have actually become grateful for them. I may have been lost, but on my journey, I found Jesus and have kept my eyes on him ever since, trusting him with all things and feeling his immeasurable love and presence every step of the way. Thank you so much for listening.
Mary, we're really grateful for your Jesus story and the way his strength and his compassion toward you has moved you in strength and compassion towards so many of us. So thank you for sharing this morning.